0: I used to have a friend who preached out of an enormous uh, red Bible. It had a red cover on it. And uh, he would hold it up and say, everybody ought to have a red Bible. By which I mean a Bible that is red. Now that's what we want to talk about this morning. Uh, Most of you have Bibles of all different colors and translations and sizes and shapes and styles and kinds. But uh, the real question is, do you know how to read your Bible? Now, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, and it's that that uh, Nehemiah 8 is concerned with. Will you turn with me, please, to that uh, that chapter? If you're new uh, to us this morning, you might have some difficulty finding Nehemiah. If you can find Chronicles, uh, the next book is Ezra, and the next book is Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. As you know from our past studies, they are now secure in in the city of Jerusalem. The reconstruction project is over. They've finished the walls. The city now has a defense system. It's secure. They've built houses in the city. Uh, A large number of people now have gathered within the city. They're working their fields. Things are back to normal. They're settling down, but something was missing. There was an itch inside that they couldn't scratch. I find that's true of a lot of people. I I, uh, talk to men who tell me they've arrived. Uh, They have the requisite good job, uh, charming house, smiling wife. 3.5 children, station wagon, a dog, a cat, a good profit-sharing plan, seven handicap, and shortness of breath. And they say, I'm I'm there. I've arrived. But there's something missing. There's something in their life that they can't put their finger on that's wrong. They just don't feel right about things. I find it true of women. Sometimes it happens when, when children leave the nest. Sometimes it happens while you're still in the throes of, of motherhood. They start talking about going back to school or getting a job, even though the family may not uh, need extra income at that time. They just feel unfulfilled and, and satisfied. There's sort of a spiritual vacuum there that nothing has uh, has filled. Now, what it is, is a hunger for God. As, as Moses put it, Men shall not live by bread alone. There has to be something more. Houses, lands, success in business, success in athletics, success in academically will not fill up your life. There has to be something more. That's what these people realized. They were secure in their homes. They had good jobs. They were doing well. But they needed something more. And so they invited Ezra to come and read the Bible to them. And they gathered in this uh, vast square uh, if if uh, This is what uh, is called in the, in, the ancient, in, in the Near East today a souk, a marketplace, right by the Watergate. The Watergate water is called the Watergate because it gave access to the spring of Gihon. But it was right in the center of, of town where everyone gathered to do their business, which is where the Bible ought to be read and applied. It, it's, it's not a book merely to be read in church. It's a book for the marketplace. It teaches you how to cope with life. As it is, So they gathered in mass to hear the scriptures read to them by Ezra. Now, this is Ezra's first appearance in the book of Nehemiah. He assumes a major uh, uh, portion, major responsibility in the book from this time on. We first hear of Ezra in the book of Ezra. He wrote that book, and uh, there's a description of him in chapter 7. Will you turn uh, back there with me? That's just one book to the left. Ezra comes just before Nehemiah. Verse uh, Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, same uh, king that we've been dealing with in the book of Nehemiah, so we're talking about the same period of time, uh, Ezra, and then a bunch of unpronounceable names, his, his pedigree is, is given, and then in verse, uh, verse uh, 3, pardon me, 6, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses. The word that's translated well-versed here really means diligent. This was a man who had studied the word diligently. He knew what was in the word. He was a teacher, diligent, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. That would be about 458 B.C., about 12 or 13 years prior to the writing of the, uh, the description of the events in the book of Nehemiah. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the good hand of his God was on him. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Uh, You may have heard Jews talk about the Midrash and the Midrashim, which is the plural form of that word. The Midrash is a is a collection of rabbinic traditions, traditional interpretations of the Old Testament. That word midrash is derived from the word that's translated study here in verse 10. Ezra had devoted himself to the study of the scriptures. The midrashim, the midrashes, came out of this uh, of the rabbinic study of the Old Testament. Ezra was a Bible teacher, basically. He gave himself to study the word and to do it because. We all know that authority, to some extent, resides in our obedience to the truth. It doesn't come out of our our office, but rather our desire to obey and respond to the truth. Even though we may not be fully obedient, when you hear a man or a woman speak who has a heart to know the word and to do it, they have authority. You listen to them. Ezra was like that. He was a diligent student of the Scriptures, and he wanted to apply it. And furthermore, he wanted to teach its decrees and, and laws in Israel. Now, Ezra was the first scribe that we know anything about. In the New Testament period, scribes got a lot of bad press. They they were the opponents of Jesus and the apostles, by and large. The scribes and the Pharisees were easily aligned against Jesus. But that happened later in history. Originally, the scribes were simply Bible teachers. People who lead your growth groups, the women's group, uh, the various small groups throughout the church are basically scribes. They're people that give themselves to studying the word and to imparting the truth in it to, to God's people. That's what Ezra was. These scribes also came to be responsible for preserving the text because they loved the scriptures. And they wanted to be sure that the scriptures were maintained in a, in their pure form. and And the later they were called counters because they used to count all the words and letters and in the Bible so they wouldn't make any mistakes when they copied it out. If you read one of these old uh, Hebrew Bibles, you'll discover raised letters at certain points that indicate the middle verse of the Pentateuch, for example, the first five books of Moses. And then there'll be another raised letter to indicate the, the middle word. And then another uh, uh, raised letter to indicate the middle... What am I, what's What am I trying to think of? What are words made up of? I can't even think of the word. No, not a syllable. Letter, letter. Oh, for goodness sake, a letter. <laughs> Sorry, a letter. Yeah, that's it. A raised letter. That indicates the middle letter of, of, the, uh, of the Pentateuch. See, they're very, they're very careful, scrupulous in the way they approach the text. People will sometimes say to you, well, you know, a lot of errors have crept into the translations over the years because what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. We don't have the originals. But that's nonsense. Prior to the finding of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the earliest manuscripts that we had of, of the Old Testament were dated somewhere in the eleventh century A.D. In 1947, a little Arab boy was throwing rocks and in holes in. In uh, sandstone cliffs and he heard something break and he crawled in and he found a jar and you know the story, they discovered a cache of manuscripts of almost all of the Old Testament dating back to to about 200 B.C. So in one fell swoop we went back into history from 1100 A.D. to the 2nd century B.C. Over a thousand years, something like 1300 years in one moment we jump back into time And when they compared these manuscripts, these 2nd century BC manuscripts, with the 11th century AD manuscripts, they discovered that they were identical. Some changes in spelling, the sort of thing that difference in spelling between honor, H O N O R, and H O N O U R, that sort of thing. But no significant differences. Why? Because the scribes approached their task with such diligence, they were so careful. When they got through writing a manuscript, they count all the letters. i got it right this time. All the letters. And, and to be sure, they didn't make a mistake. Because they loved the Word. They wanted to preserve it. And they wanted to impart it to God's people. Now, it was this sort of scribe by the name of Ezra that the people called to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Now, turn back to Nehemiah 8 again. The uh, book of the Law of Moses is unquestionably the, uh, the Torah, what Jews would call the Torah. The Jews divide their Bible into three parts, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. We call that the Pentateuch, two books, five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This was the book that, uh, that Ezra brought out. And uh, on the first day of the seventh month, according to verse 2, that's the Jewish New Year, great way to start the new year, great way to start the day by reading the Bible. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud, literally he cried out because we're talking about thousands of people gathered in an open plaza. He had to make a great deal of noise to be heard, had to have a lot of volume. He read from it aloud from daybreak till noon, about six hours, from six in the morning until twelve o'clock, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law people of God gathered men women and children who could understand that's what's meant by this phrase all who could understand no crying babies is justification for uh, a biblical justification for church nurseries I suppose uh, no uh, no children who would be bored by the reading interesting I must confess as a child growing up we didn't have uh, church school we didn't have uh, uh, children's church we didn't have graded Sunday schools. I had to sit in an adult worship service and listen. And I was bored stiff. As Jim Rayburn says, it's a sin to bore people with the Word of God. But I was bored because that was an adult meeting. And I never could see any value in sitting. I counted all the tiles in the ceiling and, and all the bricks in the wall. And I drew pictures on cards. And I was utterly bored because it was an adult meeting. The most exciting thing that ever happened is one time when Lewis Berry Chiefer, who founded Dallas Seminary, came to, to speak in our church. And we had this, had an old pulpit that had little wooden blocks set in the front of it. And I was sitting right down in front, in the front where Reed is. And Dr. Chafer was pounding on the pulpit with his fist like this. And one of those blocks fell out of the pulpit, landed on the communion table, and bounced right into my lap. And I just nearly died laughing. <laughs> my parents were mortified. And, but I, I giggled all the way through the service. That's the only thing I remember. Out of about 12 years of sitting in, in church. Oh, this is biblical justification to me for, uh, for closely graded Sunday schools, for addressing the culture of, of, of youth, for being sensitive to it. Praise God for movements like Young Life and other youth-oriented ministries that understand the culture of kids and don't bore them with the Word. Now, uh, you see, what, what you have here are people who are old enough and mature enough to appreciate what's being said. They had to stand for six hours and listen to the word being taught. That's a long time. But they weren't bored. The passage says, all the people listened attentively through the book of the law. And then, and then we're told that Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. That's probably the origin of the high pulpit in, in liturgical churches from which the scriptures are read. Uh, when I was a, a minister to students, I was on the chapel staff at Stanford, and occasionally I would, would read scripture in, in Stanford Chapel, and they had this uh, pulpit way up way up uh, on the right-hand side of the platform, and had to climb up a set of stairs to read the scriptures, and I was always scared to death that I'd trip on the front of my robe on the way up there. That's, that's where the idea came from, of putting pulpits up there so everyone could see and hear what was being said. It was important to hear the word being proclaimed. So Ezra stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. I often thought if I fell down those stairs, that would be the second funniest thing that ever happened to me in church. <clears throat> Beside him on his right stood uh, uh, Mattathias, Shema, and I'm going to read all these unpronounceable names. Thirteen men stood by him. They were readers who would spell him when he grew weary because he had to, had to use a lot of volume and I'm sure his voice would wear out. And so from time to time they would take up the, uh, the reading. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. That's also the origin of that custom in, in, in liturgical churches. Mostly when the scriptures are read, people stand up out of reverence for the for the Word of God. Ezra praised the Lord, that is, he gave an invocation. The great God and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen, they said. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It's good to remember that when you come to the Word of God, you are essentially coming to the God of the Word. We're inclined to confuse the means with the end. We make mere knowledge of the Word the end, but it's not. It's the means to the end of knowing God. That's why we study the Bible. When I was a kid growing up, I was told, Know the Word, know the Word, know the Word. And yet I could, I could never understand why there was so much ungodliness in me and others who knew the Word. It's because, unfortunately, the Word was made the end rather than the means to the end of knowing God. I didn't know Him, I knew the Word. I memorized Scripture, I studied it, but I didn't let it lead me into an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It didn't make me love Him. It didn't make me more devoted to Him because I didn't see the purpose of it all. See, that's the purpose of reading the Bible. Not to gain knowledge of the Bible, but to come to know God in a personal way. As the songwriter puts it, beyond the sacred page, we see the Lord. See, that's the purpose. Jesus' most scathing rebuke was directed at the Pharisees who studied the Bible simply for the sake of studying the Bible. If you, if you saw fiddlers a fiddler on the roof, you know exactly what he was talking about. And unfortunately, there are still fiddlers on the evangelical roof. We're, we're still preoccupied with knowing the Bible just to know the Bible. That's bibliolatry. That's worshiping the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God behind the Bible. The Bible is the means to that end. We need to know the Word so we can know God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But they are they which testify to me, and you will not come to me that you might have eternal life. We study the Word so we can worship God. That's why the people worship before they read. And then uh, in verse 7, we're told that the Levites, Jeshua, Benai, and uh, a number of other names, and I'm not going to try to read Instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Now, let's try to gather up some principles from the passage, uh, uh, the, the section that we've read thus far. First thing I want to encourage you to do is read the Bible. Read the Bible. Most of you have Bibles in your houses. In, in, in most parts of the world, people don't even have access to the Word of God. I must have ten Bibles laying around my house, and, and, and you must have at least one. Everyone has one. You press flowers in it. You keep pictures of your grandchildren children in it. It's a handy thing to have. But what I would like to say is is read the Bible. Just read it. I, I will never forget Dr. Jack Mitchell coming to Dallas Seminary. Every year he used to come and do a series of special Bible lectures. And that dear old saint would would open up the Word to us in a way that I had, had, had never seen it before. And then he would stop and he'd take his glasses off and he'd peer over the lectern and he'd say in that rich uh, brogue of his gentleman, he says, Are you reading the Bible And I always felt like he was looking right at me. He was looking right into my soul. Sure, I was reading the Bible. It's what I was going to seminary for. I was reading it uh, every day. I was studying the Bible. But I wasn't really reading the Bible to to fill my heart. And even today, I, I find that my ministry is the greatest enemy of my soul because I'm always studying to impart truth to you or to answer some question you have. But I need to be studying it in order to nourish my own soul. And I hear, Dear old Dr. Jack... Out of the past saying to me, David, are you reading your Bible? That's what I'd say to you. That's what Nehemiah, that's what Ezra wants you to you need to read your Bibles. That's what they're there for. They're not there to press flowers. They're there to speak to your heart and lead you to God. Are you reading your Bibles? Now, I'd say there are several things that we need to consider in reading our Bible. Uh, in the first place, I think we ought to read our Bible on a regular basis. Uh, For me, it's always better to read in the morning. I'm a morning person. I I just don't function at night at all. About 8 o'clock, my brain says to the rest of my body, I don't know about you, but I'm through. I'm going to bed. You can stay up if you want to. And uh, it's over. I don't try to do any creative thinking, or I don't try to write, or or study or do anything after about 8 o'clock in the evening. My body may be up, but my mind is crashed. And so I you know, I, I get up in the morning. I'm a morning person. I hit the floor running, and that's, that's premium time for me. And so I, that's the time that I try to devote to reading the Bible. Perhaps you have another time. But it needs to be done. We need to read the Bible regularly. And I think we need to read the Bible consecutively. That is, read through books. Most of us read hop, skip, and jump through the Bible. We pick up a portion here. We read a psalm there. We don't have any order to our reading. striking to me that that Ezra began in the first book of uh, the Bible, Genesis, and he just read straight through. We need to read consecutively, perhaps an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book and then go back to an Old Testament book to get some variety and to begin to put things together. But uh, read consecutively. Through books in order to pick up the argument of the book. See? And read repeatedly. I find that, that most of us read, we scan. I read news, magazines, and newspapers and other things, and I picked up the, the tendency to scan uh, articles. I hardly ever read carefully. And the danger is in reading the Bible that way, but it helps. It, it, it helps you to read it over and over again, to get it into your into your soul and into your mind. Now, I I find basically two two objections or two comments that I get when I talk to people about reading the Bible. Uh, The first is that people say, I don't have time. But that's really not true. We have time to do what we think is important. Most of us get at least two square meals a day and some sleep because we know we have to. The problem is not time. It's a matter of priority. What really matters to you? What's important? Most of us don't really believe it. When God tells us that man does not live by bread alone. We need to feed from the Word. So time is not a problem. We can always find time to do the things that are are important. What we have to understand is that it's important. It's absolutely essential. We can't walk on with God. We can't cope with life. We can't become what God wants us to be unless we're spending time in the Word. And once you make that decision, you'll find the time to do it. The, the other uh, uh, response that, that I sometimes get is that I'm just not inclined to read the Bible. I just don't get anything out of it. It's dull and it's boring. It doesn't do anything for me. Well, I would say uh, that that you need to ask yourself a couple of questions. The first is, are you a Christian? Because I think anyone who is a, an authentic believer, anyone who's given his heart to Jesus Christ as Lord, has a natural, instinctual hunger for the Word. That's the, the first thing that happened to me when I finally got things squared away with the Lord is that I wanted to read the Bible. I never did before. But it came alive to me, and I find that's true. Peter picks up uh, that idea and uses the metaphor of a newborn baby. You know the verse in 1st Peter 2. He says like a newborn baby desire actually the word is crave crave the, the 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 authentic spiritual milk of the word. It's been a long time but I can still remember those those nights when uh, when my sleep was was uh, was broken by this scream that split the universe and I Staggered down the hall, or Carolyn staggered down the hall into one of our children's rooms, and uh, there was this uh, screaming infant in, in in the crib. And you you pick the thing up and you put it under its arm and on your arm, and you try to calm it down, and it just screams louder and louder. And you stagger into the kitchen, and back in those days, uh, uh, we didn't have microwaves and and all these fancy gadgets to heat bottles. You know, you had to get a get a saucepan, put water in it and start the fire and put the, put the bottle in it and the kid's screaming the whole time and you're waiting for the bottle to get warm and, and, and finally after the bottle is warm you get it and you plug it in and, and there's this blessed relief. <laughs> I mean your ears ring for ten minutes afterward but it, it, it's quiet. See that, that baby has an instinctual need for food. He demands it. He won't put up with anything less than the best. And, and that ought to be true of us, if we're thoroughly born again. If we have no hunger for the Word, then we, we might ask ourselves a question, am I a child of God? Second reason, I think, why we lose our hunger from, for the Word is, is because there's sin in our life. Now, I'm not talking about the sort of sin that we all commit day after day that we don't want to do and we really are trying to deal with. I'm talking about rebellion. When we've come to some point in our life where we will not yield our hearts, we won't submit. And I think at that point, our study of the Word, our reading of the Bible, just comes to an end. We lose our appetite. In fact, Peter even picks up on that idea in 1 Peter 2. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice and guile and all wickedness, like newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the Word. When our, when, our, when our children didn't want to eat, we knew they were sick. There was something wrong. When we have no appetite for the Word, there must be something wrong. Some spiritual microbe is, is eating away at our, at our health. And Peter says it's malice, guile, hatred, wickedness, those sorts of things that are not dealt with. They were permit to go on. The biblical theory of knowledge states that you grow as you're prepared to grow. We grow in knowledge as we respond to the truth that we have. Uh, One of the Proverbs puts it this way, you don't cast your pearls before swine. (laughs) Now, what that proverb means is that you don't give precious things to people that will abuse them. That's why Jesus sometimes refused to talk to people who didn't have any interest in submitting to his word. Because you don't want to take precious things and let them become defiled and, and abused. And, and, and furthermore, God does not give truth to people who don't want to live on that truth. Now, he's not talking about people who want to but are, but are failing, but people who don't want to. Sometimes so, uh, someone will come to me and say, Do you have some method to help me in my Bible study? The Bible's boring to me. I need somebody to get into the Word. My first question is always, are you, are, are you willing to obey what you hear? Because so often the problem is not a lack of method. It's a condition part. But when we are willing to respond to the truth that we have, then God will give us more. As Jesus put it, those who have will get more. So we need to have ears to hear. If we we belong to Jesus and we have an open heart, then there's a natural desire to seek the Word, to read it, and to learn from it. So we need to read the Word. We need to read it consistently. We need to read it consecutively. And finally, we need to understand it. This passage that I read in verses 7 and 8 indicate that there was a class of uh, Levites, whose names are given in verse 7, 13 of them, who, when Ezra and the readers read from the book of the law, first translated it. Now, my version says making it clear. But all the rabbis, as far back as we can go, say that this word, to make it clear, means to translate the Scriptures. You see, the problem was the Jews had forgotten how to, how to speak Hebrew. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Or at least most of it is. and Certainly all the Pentateuch is. But they'd been in Babylon, where, the, where the, the language was Aramaic. They spoke Aramaic. They came back into Judea, forgotten how to read Hebrew, how to understand it. So when Ezra read the Old Testament Scriptures in Hebrew, they didn't know what he was talking about. Apparently, he would read a section, and these Levites then would translate into Aramaic. Most of the rabbis say this is the origin of the first translations of the Old Testament. The Jews call them the Targums, the Targumim. These are the Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. So the first step in understanding the Bible is to get a decent translation, one that you can understand. Now, most of us grew up with the King James version of the Bible, which is not a bad translation. The problem is... it. it it was At the time, it was translated, the Bible was translated in the language of the street. The language of the street was 17th century Elizabethan English. We don't speak Elizabethan, uh, Elizabethan English anymore unless you're a Shakespeare, uh, Shakespearean scholar. You can't read it. You can't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to you. And yet some people are, are preoccupied with maintaining the King James as the, as the translation. And what they don't understand is that, that that version was authorized by King James. He didn't translate it, by the way. He just authorized its, its translation. And it was authorized so people in the street could understand the Bible. So today, we speak a different English, so we need to, to get translations that are, that are in our idiom, that communicate to us. Nothing wrong with the King James. It's just that people don't understand it. Particularly new Christians, those of us that have been raised in church and know what it means when it says the the wind bloweth where it listeth. I mean, we know. But most people don't know. So we need to get a translation that's readable and understandable. Now, I, I would recommend, two: either the New American Standard Bible... Or the New International Version. That's the one I've been reading from. It's the one I preach from. Though I do most of my study from the New American Standard Bible because it's a little bit closer to the text. The NIV tends to be easier to read, but it, it doesn't stick quite as close to the text. So I'd say either one is good. New American Standard Bible or the New International Version. And uh, those can be picked up in, uh, in bookstores, uh, Christian bookstores around town. In general, I would say stay away from the paraphrases like Philip's translation and the Living Bible and others that are, that are more of a paraphrase than the exact translation. Sometimes they're good because they give you a, a meaning to the text that you wouldn't pick up from a literal translation. For example, Philip's translation of, of Romans 12.1, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. It's excellent. But it's a paraphrase. It's not really what Paul said. He said, don't be conformed to the world. So that, that if you want to read those versions, fine. But if you're, if you're thinking in terms of close, careful study of the Bible, go to one of the more exact translations, such as the New American Standard Bible or the, uh, uh, the NIV. Now, translations are important. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear that as they translated it into Aramaic, And they gave the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. Now, there's some value in just reading the Bible and not understanding it. Uh, Mark Twain said that uh, it wasn't the parts of the Bible he couldn't understand that bothered him. It was the parts of the Bible that he could understand. Uh, Most of the Bible is pretty straightforward, pretty clear. There are other parts of the Bible a little difficult for us. But uh, there's some value in reading even those portions that we don't understand. My father used to tell a story about a, a woman who was being teased by her children because she was very simple and ignorant and she read the Bible and she couldn't remember much of it, but she was always reading uh, her Bible. And her, so her children said one day, Mother, why do you do that? Your mind is just like a sieve. Right? Just like pouring water through a sieve. And she said, Yes, that's true, but it keeps the sieve clean. So there's something to be said for just reading the Bible, even though you don't understand it. It can impact you in ways that, that you may not even be aware of. But we should try to understand as much of it as we possibly can. Now, the problem is that we're talking about a very, very old book. The earliest portions of the Bible were written and gathered by Moses, and he wrote about the 15th century B.C. That's a long time ago. And uh, the writings of the New Testament uh, were all done in the first century A.D. That's that's also a long time ago, 2,000 years ago. We're talking about a different culture, an Eastern culture, an Oriental culture. We're talking about different languages, Semitic languages, that we're not uh, familiar with. And uh, there's a cultural uh, gap, a linguistic gap. Uh, a temporal gap between us and the Bible. And, and we need people who are specialists in these areas to help us. That's why these 13 Levites were there. They translated the scriptures and they helped people to understand the word. Now that's, that's why God has given teachers to the church, people that can devote themselves to studying the word, the history and the culture and the background and the language and taking the raw material of the word and imparting it. To you you can get that understanding from them that's why we encourage you into small groups i like to see you taking notes here on sunday morning just scribbling all over your bibles because i i i i'm trying to help you to understand what the text says our our growth groups are doing that the men's wednesday morning bible study the women's studies these are these are opportunities for you to understand the bible better That's not all they do. They're also support groups. But one of the things you can do in those groups is ask questions and dig into the text and understand the Bible better. That's our goal. So if if you don't understand the Bible, get get into a situation where someone is explaining it to you, like the women's ministry uh, Bible studies or the growth groups or some other place. We have a lot of little ad hoc uh, study groups that are going on at Hewlett-Packard and other places. Find one and get in so you can begin to understand the word now that's what that's what these uh, these Levites were there to do. They were to help help the people of God understand the text. I uh, forgot to mention a moment ago that there is now a new international version study Bible it has just come out. It is expensive it'll cost you about $25 but it's one of the best investments you will ever make A lot of the historical cultural linguistic difficulties are, are cleared up. In the notes in this Bible. So, if you're interested in understanding the background and uh, the uh, the details of the of the scriptures, this is a good uh, good resource, good source for you. As I say, it's it's expensive, but it's one of the best investments that you can make. Now, what's it all for? Why is it so important to read the Bible and understand it? Verse nine. And Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy rich food and, and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to your Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. That's what made the occasion. That's why they had a party, because they understood the words of the Bible. I wish I had time to to develop uh, some of the ideas in this paragraph. We're out of time. I just want to say that and so often when people first start to read the Bible, the result is gloom and sadness. You read about all the things you're supposed to do and undo in your life. And it's overwhelming. There's this great sense of burden, this tremendous guilt over the past. We, we men start reading the Bible and we realize how, how crude and brutish we've been to our wives and to our children. And we, and, we, and we understand that we need to make some changes, and sometimes it's overwhelming. And we get sad. And, as they say, bummed out from reading the Bible. But uh, Ezra says, don't be sad. This is an occasion for partying. Eat, eat uh, good food, he says. Fat food, rich food, and sweet drinks. And invite everyone in who's poor. And bring them into the feast. Because reading the Bible ought to produce joy in your life. Because it teaches you how to cope with life, see? It's not there to simply condemn you. It's to teach you how to live life the way we know we ought to live it. How to heal your marriage. How to deal with doubt and despair and depression. And where purpose and meaning comes from and significance. And how to handle all the little nettling problems that come your way through the day. It's all there in the Word. And furthermore, as you read the Word, you discover that God is there to help you change. That is not merely a matter of reading the Bible and gritting your teeth and, and changing your life. There is a, a, what I think of as a magical quality in the Word. Because as you read it and you meditate upon it and you think about it, what happens is that your belief system changes. The way you think begins to change. Your mind is altered. That's what Paul means in Romans 12 when he says, Don't be conformed to this world and their way of thinking. But be transformed in your mind. How does that happen? By reading the Word. You hear the mind of Christ. And your mind is changed. You begin to think differently. And then before long, before you even realize it, and often without any conscious effort, you begin to behave differently. Your behavior is constant with your beliefs. And I say, how does that happen? I don't know. All I know is that God is at work changing you. So when you read the Bible, you shouldn't look sad. You know, some people, when they, some Christians look like, like they've been weaned on a dill pickle. They're so sad all the time. Their faces would make a great frontispiece for Lady Miss I mean, They just look terrible. But that's not the way we ought to look. We ought to be full of joy. Because the Bible teaches us about life. And we have a God who's going to translate the principles in Scripture into our lives. That's why the psalmist loved the law. He said, oh, how I love your law. Nobody loves the law today but lawyers. But they loved the law in that day because they saw what it did for them. It taught them how to live life and like it. And they saw that God was at work to take the principles of Scripture and make them real and true in their lives. And that ought to produce joy. If you're too preoccupied with your Christian growth and you're sad, we get worried about you. Don't be so serious. Reading the Bible is like going to a party. You see? That's what he's saying. And if you want an illustration of it, it follows in in the paragraph that concludes this chapter. And I'm not going to take time to read it. Except to say that the heads of the families, the fathers... And the priests and the Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah got together and they began to study the scriptures. And they realized from studying the the law that the month in which the scripture was read uh, was a special month to Israel. It was the first month of the year in the Jewish New Year. And on that year, they all got together and uh, they they, uh, they built uh, booths on top of their houses in their backyard and out in the squares and around the city and all over the place. And they all moved out into these booths and they and they camped out. And there's a reason. This was a reminder. It was a reminder of those days when they'd been in the wilderness, and they camped out for forty years. Also, a special way of celebrating the feast of in, uh, the, the period of in gathering, the harvest. And uh, so it had a, had a double. It evoked a double memory in their minds. But basically, it was fun. I mean, who doesn't who enjoy camping out? You read the Bible and you think, "Oh no, no! I got all these commands I got to obey." And you read the Bible and it says, "Go camp out with your kids." You can't stay home and work in the yard. You can't clean house. You got to go outside and camp out with your kids. Boy, that's fun. My kids used to love to go out in the backyard and camp. And they thought it was even greater if mom and dad went out there and camped out with them. And from the time uh, we've had little kids around the house, we've done a lot of camping out. And Carolyn and I, uh, one of our greatest joys is to hook our little uh, tent trailer on our car and zip off into the mountains. We love it. It's fun. That's what Nehemiah said. You You know, we're not supposed to read the Bible and get bummed out. You read the Bible and you discover God wants you to camp out. See? He wants you to have fun. And they did. As it is written, he said, the people went out, brought back branches, built themselves booths on their roofs and their courthouses and the courts of the house of God and in the plaza by the water gate. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua son of Nun. That's the first, uh, when they first came in to possess the land. From the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was great. You realize that reading the Bible is like a party. It's like a picnic. It's like going camping out. Because you discover that it's words are life. It's what imparts life and meaning to your existence. So why do we avoid it? Why don't we read it? As the chorus puts it, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's what God wants to impart to you and to me. Joy! And it comes through reading His Word. And tell me, why wouldn't we read a book like that? Let's pray. Let's stand together, and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Lord, deliver us from our misapprehensions and our misunderstandings and our misrepresentations of your word. Some of us here, Lord, have been taught from infancy that, that it's a hard thing to be a Christian and that it exacts a, a great toll upon us in terms of, of living life the way we, we know it ought to be lived. Help us to realize that you've come to set us free. That your word is not given to cramp our style but to comfort us and alert us to the resources that we have in Christ and warn us of the dangers in life that, are, that, that otherwise we wouldn't even be aware of. Things which would destroy us and take the, the joy and significance out of life. Make us men and women and children of the book. Lord, help us to love it as the psalmist did and learn from it And permit you to change our lives as we come to understand it. We ask in Jesus' name.